our loving Lord God. We praise you that you're a speaking God. And we confess that we don't always find what you have to say uh, easy or palatable. And so we pray for humble hearts this morning. Pray for clarity, pray for faithfulness to your words and their willingness to hear it and to live in light of it. Please speak, we pray, and uh, be, through my words, speaking to all our hearts, that we might be convicted of sin, caused to rejoice in the Lord Jesus, and renewed for the battle ahead. We pray for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let me begin by acknowledging that today's passage is going to cut quite close to the bone for a number of us. Uh, Verses 27 to 30 is a fairly straightforward passage, I think, which is so radical in its sexual ethics that there can barely be a single one of us who isn't going to be convicted by it. Verses 31 to 32 is a passage with a much more narrow focus. I hope the question of divorce will directly be relevant to only a very few of us here, ever in our lives, though I am aware that it has already affected a number in our congregation and will in the future, I guess. I'm conscious that some of us will be hurting in one or other of these areas as we look at them this morning. Some will be caught in sin and feel deeply convicted. Some of us will be bearing the scars of past relationships that have cut so deep and haven't healed yet. Some of us might be tempted to resist what this passage says. So I need to be clear up front. A Christian is somebody who has surrendered themselves to God. Someone who's willing to say, God, whatever you say, however hard it is to hear, I will do. I will obey. God has given us this word for our good. It is good for us because our culture is so deeply confused at the moment about sexual ethics in general and about divorce in particular. And Jesus has called us, hasn't he, to be salty lighty people, a city on a hill, a different people, a different culture. It's good for us because the clearer we can be on what the Bible says, the better we can love those in our midst who are hurting. Love one another with truth as well as compassion. It is for our good, but it won't necessarily be comfortable. The truth is, many of us, perhaps all of us, are going to need to have honest conversations after this morning, perhaps with uh, people we know best in the church. Let me say, this passage has worked me over as much as it will work you over this week. I've spent a lot of time in it. Every one of us comes to uh, the Bible as broken people. And I'd be stunned if it wasn't true for every single one of us that we're broken in some way in our sexuality, our sexual ethics, and our attitude to marriage. But if we are Jesus' people here this morning, we need to hear what he says. It was countercultural back then, as we'll see, and it is countercultural today. And if you're here as somebody looking into Christian things, you're not yet a Christian, you might feel that Jesus' teaching here is so ridiculously hard uh, that how could we possibly even consider it? And yet I hope what you'll see is that his attitude to, to marriage and sex within marriage is so deeply attractive, that you'll be drawn towards him. So let's jump into the text. We'll work slowly through it. First, verses 27 to 30, Jesus demands the highest standard of sexual ethics. 
And just as back in verse 21 we saw last week, Jesus begins his passage by quoting from the Ten Commandments and then proceeds to interpret it. And just like last week, Jesus raises the bar to an almost unbearable level. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Committing adultery in the Bible is to have sex with someone who's already married to someone else. The punishment for that in the Old Testament was to be stoned to death. And it may be that one or two of us here are guilty of that. We may have violated somebody else's marriage covenant in the past. Let me say it's totally unacceptable. And let me say there is forgiveness at the cross of Jesus, if that is you. But the truth is, Jesus raises the bar here in such a way that none of us can get away from what he's saying. The, the word anyone there in verse 28 is clearly referring to men. A man has committed adultery in his heart. And there is something peculiarly male, isn't there, about uh, looking lustfully. And we'll come to that in a few moments. But ladies, if you think you're excluded from listening into this, look at verse 32. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, you see, it's just as possible for women to be guilty of sexual immorality as it is for men. Uh, the way we get in there might be different. It might not begin with a look for you as it might do for, for a man. Uh, but the path to sexual immorality, uh, the sin that begins it all, is still sin. And Jesus calls us out for it. Notice what Jesus does here. First, he broadens the people with whom one might commit adultery. It is, after all, any man with any woman. This is no longer adultery in the strictest sense of the law. No longer is it simply, uh, if a woman is married to someone else, she's off limits. And now Jesus says, if you are not married to that person, they are off limits. Do you see the difference? Secondly, he broadens the ways in which one might commit adultery. It's no longer the simple physical act anymore. And Jesus says, a, lust, a lusty look is enough. Now let's be clear, Jesus is not saying, if you find someone else attractive, you have committed this sin. The word uh, looking lustfully here has an intent about it. It involves planning, it involves indulging a thought. Perhaps it's dwelling on that person, thinking about sex with them, thinking perhaps how I might get one-on-one -on -one with that person, at a, a staff social or something, just to get a conversation going that might lead somewhere. That thinking, that process, is clearly the beginning of the road to adultery. Nobody suddenly finds that they're accidentally committing adultery, do they? It's a thing that you think through, you indulge a thought that leads down a road uh, to action. And Jesus says, even the thought is a damnable offence. And the truth is, let me address the men in the room, it doesn't take much to set us off, does it, chaps, if we're honest? It may not be clear to the ladies in the room quite how visually wired we are when it comes to sex. They won't understand it, and they'll probably think we're quite shallow. And they're right. But that is often how we are, isn't it? And I guess for us it might be something as simple as taking a second look at that new girl in the office or, or on the commuter train or, or on the beach. It might be just that short scene in, a, in a, an 18-rated movie. It might simply be being at home alone with the computer 
late at night. And let's pause on that one. A whole generation of men, my generation, our generation, has grown up with the internet. Everything available at the click of a button. No parental controls, no supervision. Uh, no advice from a wise preceding generation to steer clear of certain sites. A whole generation of men with fund- fundamentally warped expectations of relationships with the opposite sex. Uh, a problem that even the secular press is beginning to cotton onto. Even the Guardian is writing about the dangers of pornography. It's a real problem. Let me say, our lustful intent towards women on our computer screens has rewired our brains, so the doctors say. There's a lot of research coming out, and I'm not going to dwell on it here. There's too much to cover this morning. Do look it up. There's plenty to see. But the stats are frightening, and the damage that's being done to our relationships by pornography is frightening. And Jesus says, there is no place for lustful looking in the Christian life. Now, I'm not going to suggest that men and women are totally different at this point. The stats for women and pornography is sufficiently scary that it would be foolish to say that. And after all, if, if a new guy starts at work who looks a bit like Brad Pitt, well, what's the harm in a second look, ladies, really? But I wonder whether for ladies it comes a bit different. Perhaps it's not so much a look. Perhaps it's more of an emotional thing. That bond you create with a male friend who's just such a good listener. Or the guy at work who stays late to help you finish that project and, unlike your husband, actually notices you've done something new with your hair. How many steps from adultery in your heart are you? So what is Jesus' solution here? Emergency surgery. Amputation. You've got a gangrenous appendage, he says, that's infecting your whole body, risking your soul. He says, cut it out, throw it away. Look down at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Lust encounters the object of our desire through the eye. So remove the eye. Now let's be clear, eyes are important. I think what Jesus is getting at here is, you imagine a Roman soldier, okay, with his, with his shield, this isn't going to work, okay, and the soldier holds the shield on the left-hand side and holds the sword on the right-hand side. Right hand, and the shield covers the left-hand side of the face, so he uses the right eye to see. And Jesus is saying, even these most important of your appendages, even your right hand and your right eye, you'd be better, to, better off to cut them off and throw them away than to risk being thrown into hell. Now, Jesus, I don't think he's saying, literally cut off parts of your body. If he was, then there wouldn't be many of us here with two arms and two eyes, would there, if we're honest? But Jesus is saying, you need to do something drastic. Emergency surgery on your life to get rid of the sin. Your soul, your whole body, is much more important than those simple appendages. And he says lustful looking is sin. It's of a piece with adultery. It goes to the same place and it deserves to go to hell. And so there is our choice, isn't it? Throw away all that causes us to fall into this offence or be thrown out body and soul. I don't think Jesus could be more stark if he tried, could he? 
Here is a calling to the highest possible standard of sexual ethics. And so what do we need to do with this? Let me suggest two categories of things. You can, you can work through the application of them, I think, later uh, with a close friend. The first is, remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen already, haven't we, that if we draw near to Jesus, uh, dwell on him, spend time in his word, re- reflect on his character, we become like him. That, I think, is the process being described in, uh, in the Beatitudes. Just look down at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, recognising our sin. Recognising for what it is. Verse 4, mourning over our sin. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A change of desires, a longing to be like Jesus. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Not adultery in the heart, the pure in heart. You see the contrast, the thing that Jesus is aiming for. And so when we're tempted, we need to run to Jesus, don't we? We need to pray. We need to make it a habit to be reflecting on Jesus all the time. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another as we spend time with Jesus. And so the greatest help to change our hearts, to change our desires, is to spend time with Jesus. But there's more we can say, isn't there, secondly? We can help each other to fight temptation too. We can find a close friend to be honest with about how you're struggling in that relationship or you're struggling with your use of the internet or something. Perhaps perhaps your prayer triplet, if you have one. Perhaps uh, your small group leader or or one of the elders. Uh, Someone you can pray with, someone you can walk side by side with. Uh, We can help each other in other ways. Uh, ladies, how about this? If, uh, we, we were visiting a, a friend yesterday. And she once said to me, we used to go to church together, she said to me, if I ever wear anything uh, that causes you to be distracted in church, let me know and I'll get rid of those clothes. Because she was concerned to be a help and not a hindrance to her, her male friends at church. Uh, guys, let's think about how we engage in friendships with our, with our female uh, friends. Absolutely be friendly but let's be careful not to create an emotional dependency that might lead uh, that lady to wrong thoughts. And of course, there's things we can do to help ourselves, aren't there? Do you need to radically cut off something from your life? Do you need to get rid of the internet from your home? Is that what's going to be helpful for you? Or, or perhaps install something like Covenant Eyes. A number of us have that on our computers. Uh, it's a, a Christian parental controls programme that lets your friends know what you're looking at on the internet. (coughs) Both men and women here need to guard our hearts in our relationships, don't we? Whether it's with friends or colleagues, people of the opposite sex in general, or if that's your struggle, people of the same sex, if that's your thing. And God being willing, as we we strive to cut out the thought at its root, (coughs) we will be purer people and less prone to adulterous behaviour with it. And that that, uh, issue of adultery leads us into the second point, uh, these uh, last two verses of our passage, verses 31-32. Jesus demands the highest standards of marital commitment. And let me say this again. If lust is a problem that all of us will have to work through to a greater or lesser extent... Divorce is something that I have been praying this week. Very few of us will ever have to encounter up close. But for some of us, this is very raw. It's very real in our own personal experience. Either we've been divorced or getting divorced, or we're the children of divorce 
And we've seen up close how painful it is. And so it's really important that we address this and take care with it. Verse 31. Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy 24.1. But just as last week, I don't think Jesus is primarily addressing that text. I take it he's setting himself up against those who interpret that text in his own culture. And we'll come back to our passage in a moment. But I'd love us just to flick over to chapter 19 if we can. Please. Uh, we've, we've got two verses on, uh, on divorce in our passage this, this morning, which is not uh, by any means everything Jesus has to say on the subject in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 19, Jesus enters into a dialogue on this very subject. Page 986, uh, chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test him. What's the test? Jesus, are you going to be uh, more liberal or, or stricter than Moses, or are you going to be like Moses at this point? They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now let's be clear on Deuteronomy 24.1, which is in the background here. Deuteronomy 24.1 is a concession. The principle in the Bible is always marriage is sacred. It is one man and one woman in bodily union for life. But Moses gave this law from God as a concession because sometimes marriages do break. And by Jesus' day, Deuteronomy 24.1 had been interpreted by the majority to allow divorce for pretty much any and every reason. Your wife burnt the toast in the morning. That was enough to get a divorce. True case history. If you found someone prettier, you just got rid of your wife. That's just the way it worked. Divorce for any and every reason. And, and, and we see that in our culture today, don't we? And very, very easy to get divorced for almost anything today. Jesus responds to their question by observing that God had created marriage in the Garden of Eden. Verse 5, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And his point is that at the point of sexual union, a new family is created. A new, a new one person is bound together for life. And so then in verse 9 here, but back in, in chapter 5, verse 32, let's go back there. Same point is being made. The principle is very, very clear to Jesus. Marriage is meant to be permanent. There should not be divorce. Marriage must not be broken because marriage is a covenant before God. Once you're in a covenant, there's no getting out of it. That's the basic principle. Unless, unless the covenant is already broken. See, a covenant has demands. We'll know that if you, if you were here for the Bible overview last year, we saw lots about covenants, didn't we? The terms of the covenants that you were not allowed to break... Well, the wedding certificate for, uh, for a Jewish person uh, had vows on it, promises. In fact, the, the vows for a wedding were the ones were drawn straight out of Exodus 21 that Rob read for us earlier. Did you spot them? Uh, food, clothing, and marital rights. And of course, we'd add in Exodus 20, verse 14, uh, faithfulness, to not commit adultery. Those were the terms of the covenant, and they still are in our marriages today. I mean, we've, we've slightly changed the words, but the basic idea is still there, isn't it? Love, cherish, serve or submit, and be faithful. Those are the things we've, if you're married here, you've promised to do those things. And if you're going to get married here, those are things you will promise to do. Now, Jesus does, does not demand divorce in any circumstance, as the people in his day did. But he does understand that in a limited number of particular situations, the covenant is already broken. 
And the best thing to do is to, to formalise that with a divorce. And when Jesus draws our attention to the sexual union of two people in marriage in chapter 19, he's making a profound point. A couple are bound to one another by sexual love. They continue to be bound together like that by continuing to be united sexually. And if you're married, that's what you should be doing. And when one of them has sex with somebody else, they are totally smashing their marriage union and creating something similar to a marriage with somebody else entirely. Unfaithfulness that destroys the covenant. I take it that's why back in chapter 1, if you can remember that far back, Joseph thinks Mary's been unfaithful because she's got pregnant. And the question for Joseph is not whether he's supposed to get a divorce, but simply whether to make it private or public. If Mary's been unfaithful, then the marriage is over before it's begun. End of story. And so Jesus holds marriage in the highest regard. And notice verse 32, would you? Anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's be clear what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that all people who get married a second time are adulterous. Jesus is, after all, talking to a bunch of people who have got remarried, very probably after getting invalid divorces. Jesus is saying this. He's saying most of the divorces that happened in his day and many of the divorces that happen in our day are invalid, immoral, In God's sight, those two people are still married because the covenant has not been broken. And therefore what he's saying is if you're in one of those situations and you get remarried, uh, you have caused the woman to be the victim of adultery. You've divorced her without it being a valid divorce and you've forced her when she marries somebody else to be in an adulterous relationship. And if you marry somebody who's, who's got one of these immoral divorces then you've committed adultery. That's what he says. That's quite a shocking thing to say, isn't it? I guess it's quite a shocking thing to hear. I guess it would have been quite a shocking thing for the thousands of people sitting in front of Jesus to hear, as many of them sat there thinking, so is my marriage a legitimate marriage? What's going on? How am I supposed to think about this, Jesus? And so because it pastorally affects us today, I need to go a little wider than this text for a moment to look at the biblical reasons why a divorce might be legitimate. Let me add in a caveat, if I can, at this point. Not everyone would agree with me that divorce is ever permissible, though I take it this passage pretty much says it is. Uh, There would be difference of opinion on this, and therefore everything I'm about to say would be ruled out entirely by somebody who says that that marriage can never be dissolved. Uh, I'll try and flag up some things as we go. Uh, to be clear. Let me say that as a, as a leadership, we haven't come to a formal position on this. And he's asked me to prepare a paper on divorce and remarriage for the elders to consider over the next couple of months. And we will be uh, in a position to discuss those things more, more fully at that point. But nevertheless, it's here in our passage. And the best I can do is to, to try and explain what I think the passage is saying. Look down at verse 32 again, would you? Uh, except for sexual immorality... The word there, sexual immorality, in verse 32 is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It has a very broad meaning in the New Testament, 
Basically, any sexual activity at all outside of faithful heterosexual marriage is porneia. But it seems to, be, to me to be being used here as a synonym for adultery, though I take it that the meaning could be wider than that. It could be sexual activities with somebody that hasn't got as far as adultery, but um, I think adultery is in view. And there's precedent for this. When God's people are unfaithful to him by worshipping idols in the Old Testament, God uses the image of sexual immorality. The people have been unfaithful to him. And actually God twice uses the image of divorce to explain why he's sending them into exile. So if you're taking notes, uh, these two references to look at later, Isaiah 50 verse 1, Jeremiah 3 verse 8, uh, God gives his people a certificate of divorce and sends them away. At least for that generation, you are no longer my people. Go. Because of your unfaithfulness. Now let's address the certificate of divorce for a moment. It's there in our text. We have lots of them, because there were lots of divorces in Jesus' day. And they all basically say the same thing. They're a legal binding document that say you are free to remarry. Now there is a big disagreement in the church about whether that would still be enforced and whether remarriage is ever permitted. What I think we can definitely say from this passage is that Jesus doesn't repudiate that. He's uh, addressing remarriages that are illegitimate. He's not saying all remarriages are illegitimate. Let's be clear on that. And I personally take it that it's implicit to what Jesus does here that if you are the wronged party in a divorce and if you've striven to keep the marriage together and the other party has walked away then it is legitimate for you to get remarried to a believer. But that rather brings us back again to the question, doesn't it? What is, an, what is a legitimate divorce? Let me be clear again. Jesus is for marriage. Jesus invented marriage. He intended marriage to be a picture of his relationship with the church, a covenant that should never be broken. Moreover, in 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll come to in a moment, as elsewhere, the priority is for reconciliation, not for divorce. Divorce is always and absolutely the last straw, the last option, after everything else has been explored. However, because this world is fallen and sometimes the covenant is so smashed that a divorce is needed, there are permissible reasons to divorce and we want to be clear on those things. We've already argued that sexual immorality is one of the reasons. There are two other texts I want to bring to bear at this point, to widen that out a little bit. And we've already suggested that Exodus 21 provides the terms of the covenant. If the husband does not provide food and clothing and sexual love for his wife, or vice versa, because we have equal opportunities here, then the covenant is broken. And you can be compelled, uh, he could be compelled to give her a divorce. That was the, the idea. The court would come and, and flog him till he signed the bit of paper to release her. And that's important for us, isn't it? Because the issue of neglect is a very real one. And whether it's physical or emotional, uh, domestic violence happens. We know that. Might even have happened, might even be happening to some here. It's very real. It happens in both directions. Sometimes husbands are abused by their wives and, and feel deeply ashamed of it. And uh, what, what should we do as a church? In that situation, I think the first thing is we encourage the guilty party to repentance, to reform their life and be reconciled to their spouse. 
More often than not, that is resisted. The person chooses not to come under the, the word of God or the discipline of the church. And so we might conclude in that situation that the, uh, the covenant of marriage has been permanently broken. I take it this is reinforced by 1 Corinthians 7. Do turn there, if you will do, please. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul gives a, a very extended uh, discourse on marriage, the rights and wrongs of. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. See, in a Christian marriage, where both parties are Christian, it might be permissible for there to be a separation for a while, but always with a view to reconciliation. I said at the beginning that a Christian is someone who submits to God no matter what he requires of us. And so being humble enough to admit our faults in the marriage, being willing to prayerfully change and come to reconciliation as Christian believers is the right thing to do. And God willing, two believers submitting to scripture and seeking all the help they can get will be reconciled. And we'll all know every marriage has its struggles. And as Christians we need to humbly work at these things together. What happens though if one of the party is not a Christian? won't sit under the teaching of the gospel, has no interest in serving Jesus, or let's say, for the sake of argument, that the husband claims to be a Christian, but as elders we go and talk to that person, he refuses to sit under the word of God, refuses to repent, refuses to be reconciled, is behaving like an unbeliever. Well, says Paul, verses 12 to 14, the Christian party in the marriage should do everything they can to live peaceably with their spouse. Marriage, after all, is a gift of God in creation to all people, and all should honour it, and Christians, above all, should honour the marriage. But what if the unbelieving spouse decides to leave, which I take to be an extreme case of neglect, extreme case of the uh, uh, Exodus 21 principle. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. The phrase is not bound, I think, is taken pretty much verbatim out of the certificate of divorce. In verse 27, it's explained as, as being related to freedom. Paul says, you are free. Free, I take it, though others might disagree, to take a believing spouse. Now, there is much more to say, and I've got a lot of thinking to do. And I hope that you'll give us time and pray for us as we work through these things as an eldership. But I think this is really important for us to be as clear as we can be on. For the sake of, uh, firstly, understanding the text in front of us, Matthew 5. But also in seeking to love each other and love according to the truth. Let me say that none of what I've said uh, is an excuse to seek a divorce that's what Jesus' culture was doing, and Jesus rebukes that. He slams their decadence, their morality, when it comes to divorce. Jesus is, above all things, pro-marriage. <coughs> He's pro-working at marriage to be reconciled and re-reconciled to each other, and to be sanctified through that process. And those of you who are married will know what I mean by that. Let me say, if this sermon has raised questions for you, please come and grab me. Email me. 
shout at me, whatever is going to be helpful for you. But let's be clear, this is God's good word to us. He's given it to convict us of sin in these areas. It should be uncomfortable. I hope it is uncomfortable in a way. I hope it will challenge our choices going forward. He's given it to us to show us how great Jesus is. We haven't time to dwell on this now. But you see, Jesus is perfect in this area, isn't he? Tempted like the rest of us, but without sin. Even in his head, even in his heart. It should make us profoundly grateful as we reflect on our fallenness in this area. That God looks at us and sees Jesus' perfection instead. It should draw us close to Jesus in repentance and faith as we cling to him for fresh forgiveness today. And it should send us out with a renewed commitment together to love Jesus and to love as he loves the people around us. To be pure as he is pure. And that's not going to be easy, is it? But as we draw near to Jesus, as we reflect on his character, as we see him for who he is, we have the power to change, folks. Some of us will feel weighed down with years of the same temptation, the same failings. There is power to change. We can live radical lives, Jesus-honouring lives, even in the places where it hurts, as we draw near to him, as we grow the loves that he has, as we love each other as he would. Should we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, these are hard words, perhaps very painful words for some of us. Uh, You knew that when you spoke them for the crowd in front of you. You knew it when you put it in your word for us today. You know that we need to hear it. And you know that in this area, above all areas, we perhaps struggle to be distinct from the world around us. And so we pray that you would give us a renewed commitment to live your way, a hunger to be radical, a compassion for those who are hurting, a love for one another that seeks to apply the hard words to each other's lives, a willingness to be open to each other, even though it's uh, shaming. Thank you that you've taken all our shame and dealt with it at the cross. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are in the hearts of uh, your people to renew us after the image of the Lord Jesus. We long to be like him. We long to be rid of every uh, stain of sin. And we pray that you would uh, work that renewal in us day by day. Our Father, would you make us uh, as we should be, as we will be one day, uh, like the Lord Jesus. And please be with those of us who are particularly in the mire, in in the area of our marriage or in the area of our sexual ethics now. Help us to be honest with, uh, with close friends. Help us to uh, bear each other's burdens. Help us to remember that uh, we are all uh, fallen in this area and help us to carry each other. And Heavenly Father, bring us home, we pray, uh, safely through the Lord Jesus. Amen.